Hello, everyone. We hope your 2023 is off to a great start. We're enjoying our break, but really looking forward to recording our first episode of Talking Triple Crown in the new year next week and getting back to our regular kickout episodes with you all in February. Today, we wanted to bring you audio from part of a planned Matches We Love episode that we had slated to drop toward the end of October, but due to some scheduling conflicts with guests and deadlines with an unplanned episode that went out that month, we wound up holding back the audio we were able to record at that time. That's what you'll be hearing today, and we hope you'll enjoy learning about two tournament matches from Pro Wrestling Noah and All Japan Pro Wrestling that speak beautifully to the stories of their respective sets of rivals and contemporaries. So, without further ado, let's get into it. All right, so I'm going to go first, and the match that I picked out today is going to be Keno versus Katsuko Nakajima, and that is going to be on October 14th, 2017 at Currican Hall, and it was a B-block match for the Global League 2017, which is what we've now come to know as the N1 victory. In 2017, Noah at this point is going through a severe stage of rebuilding after the disastrous Suzuki-gun storyline that ended at the end of 2016, and it just left the promotion in a desolate state. I know we've talked about this through hundreds of episodes, not hundreds, but plenty of episodes at this point. Um, So it cannot be understated what effect this storyline had on this promotion. On November 1st, 2016, it was announced that Noah had been sold to IT development company SB Co. Limited. As a result, former AJPW president Masayuki Uchida took over as the new Noah president. The company underwent some changes to try to rehabilitate its image, including announcing the theme for 2017 to be Noah the Reborn. This became a recurring theme and important phrase used throughout this match. You hear it throughout the entirety of commentary, which was provided by Takashi Sugiura, might I add. (laughs) Just a a fun little fact there. But, uh, you know, you hear Noah the Reborn quite a lot. There's just this desperate, palpable need for Noah to change its image from the past two years. And as a result, it really needed to put more weight on its sign talent to help carry it forward. And... Throughout the end of 2016 and a long stretch of 2017, Nakajima was thought to be that figure of hope, was thought to be that talent that could carry it forward as their young champion. He had an impressive pedigree. He had 12 years of experience despite being very young. And it just felt like Nakajima was an easy choice for the young ace of Noah. He held the belt for an impressive 307 days before dropping it to Eddie Edwards, on August 26, 2017, which is just six weeks before this match. For Nakajima, this loss was sort of everything. There's this overwhelming feeling of failure going into this tournament. He had failed to become the Zenkai champion or ultimate champion that he had aimed to be, and he had lost the belt to an unsigned outsider, and he had failed to enter Global League as GHC champion. So he now had this title of former GHC heavyweight champion kind of weighing down on him 
all the way building to this match. And just like Noah itself, Nakajima was kind of in the need for rebirth. He needed to win Global League 2017. He had to get his revenge against Eddie Edwards. And he had to reinvent himself and reorient himself as the center of Noah. This was a critical moment for him. And he walked into this match fully aware of the weight of it all. And that's what brings us to his first obstacle to this rebirth. And that would be Keno. Keno had moved up from the junior weight division on December 24th, 2016, and started off 2017 as a newly christened Noah heavyweight. His motivations for this change were self-motivated, but they were also company-focused. In a 2016 interview, Keno reflected on the company and his ideal place in it as he moved to heavyweight. He stated that fans had, and I quote, forgotten Noah's essence, and that he wanted to be at the heart of an internal conflict between the roster of signed Noah wrestlers to remind everyone in the audience what Noah could really be without an invading force going straight for that, like the neck of Suzuki Goon and that whole storyline. He saw himself as a much needed addition to the heavyweight division. However, Keno didn't really begin to shine as a solo player in Noah until the second half of 2017. He had success as a tag team wrestler, winning the GHC tag titles first with Masakita Mia and then with Takashi Sugira. But he had little success as a singles wrestler, even losing twice to Nakajima before this match took place, once on January 9th, 2017, and again on September 23rd. However, in July of 2017, Sugira underwent surgery to tackle an ongoing heart condition and needed several months to recover, leaving Keno without a tag team partner. President Uchida actually offered Keno a new partner, but Keno refused, and he found an option to start making his mark as a singles competitor, and that would be the Zero One Fire Festival. From July 9th to July 30th, Keno participated in the Fire Festival and had a pretty impressive showing of finishing fourth place with 28 points. However, when he returned to Noah, his standing was still kind of the same. He was placed in a lot of opening matches against Junta Miyawaki, and he took a whole lot of fall, um, falls and tag matches. But his work in the tournament caught the attention of Masato Tonika, and the two had a match for the Zero One World Heavyweight title on August 31st. Though Keno lost this bout, he came out of this match a changed man. I can't stress that enough. In a 2017 interview with Perez Today, Keno went so far to say, I am who I am today thanks to that match with Masato Tonika. After this match on August 31st, Keno started racking up wins like wildfire and started speaking out against his dissatisfaction with Noah's direction and ownership. He started raising hell both in and out of the ring, and just six weeks later, he was set to participate in his very first global league. Much like Nakajima, Keno was searching for his footing in the company. He had proved his worth, worth against Tanaka in 0-1, but... He still needed to find himself as a true singles competitor in Noah. He needed to establish himself as badly as Nakajima needed to reestablish himself. They were both seeking rebirth in their own way, and their first obstacle was each other. I do want to note, while it is coincidence, I think it is remarkable that Nakajima lost the belt to Edwards five days before Keno faced Tanaka. 
Both of these matches signaled a significant shift in both men's careers and happened within the same week. So basically, Keno started to gain his confidence at the same time that Nakajima lost his. I find that pretty of note. So ultimately, that's sort of where we're at. That's setting the stage for this match. Two men with similar movesets with absolutely everything to prove against each other. And both competitors were desperately seeking to win this global league, face Eddie Edwards, and find their true place in Noah the Reborn. It's sort of remarkable because we've talked about both of their stories individually before. We're going all the way back to our I Am Noah episode and their stories become incredibly integral to each other just within the past what like two years basically oh, for yeah. as long as you and I have been friends not yeah. yes. and kind of stories have now you know intersected in such a very important way but you really do make the case here that their stories actually begin to intersect much earlier than that which is really interesting and as I talk about this match I'm going to argue that this is the big moment that their story really begins to intersect uh, this is where it is. Uh, one fan, actually, I was just going through some fan sentiment about this match and I liked it. Um, one fan stated that it felt like red and blue flames flicking at each other and intertwining. And I thought that was just a really cool way to describe this match. And as we go into it, uh, hopefully I will be able to capture that because that's really what I feel happens is that these two flames are meeting. And now where we're at in their current storyline, they have ignited into something. So let's begin. Right from the entrances, I have a couple important things to note. And one is that Keno entered the match already with a chip on his shoulder and a grudge specifically against President Uchida. He chucks his ring robe at him with just so much force while Uchida sat at the ring announcer's table, kind of amused. It's it's a very funny moment. I definitely suggest you go and seek that out. But uh, it also speaks towards Keno's personality. And two is Nakajima. In the six weeks since Nakajima lost the title to Eddie, he had begun to make some changes to his physical appearance and his attitude. His hair at that point had begun to grow out just a little bit, and he was sporting a new beautiful mustache that we know him for today. He looked a lot more mature, and he carried himself with his own sort of chip on his shoulder, and he sort of came across as more, um, I guess, self-involved and sadistic than before. And right off the bat, like the men were just sort of loudly declaring who they were going right into those themes of finding themselves and finding their footing in Noah and finding their place in the promotion. They're just declaring who they are. And one thing I really want to note is that in Nakajima's entrance, you have to watch Keno's body language. He stands staring at the Kurikan Hall entrance, but he doesn't actually watch Nakajima as Nakajima enters. He just keeps staring straight ahead. And you get this really, really good camera moment where Nakajima is flaunting himself on the ring apron to the audience. And Keno is just completely still staring straight forward, his back to Nakajima. And that to me says so much about where they both were at the beginning of this match. Obtaining their goal was far more important than the opponent themselves. So the bell rang and the match started at a breakneck speed. 
Keno and Nakajima are just showering elbows and kicks onto each other with extreme force. Each man sort of desperate to prove that they were the correct person to carry Noah. This pace continued through the first several minutes of the match, wasting no time before taking it out onto the floor, including this vicious German suplex onto the floor from Keno, with Keno even throwing the referee off to the side to do more damage to a limp Nakajima. And the way Nakajima sells this is just very him. It's it's very classic. It's very painful looking. <laughs> just looks like a looks like a kick dog. Uh, from there, Keno dragged Nakajima out into the orange seating section of Kurikan Hall. And where Keno, and I love this part, he stole a Keno support towel from a fan and used it to choke Nakajima. And then Nakajima grabs that fan's shirt and starts tugging on it for purchase. It's just very visceral. The whole thing is very involved in the audience. They're going through all of these uh, seats. They make it to the landing. And in the landing, they have this nasty kick exchange before the count begins but it's just it's very involved it's very within the crowd and I think that's really significant in fact actually a good like I want to say 45 to 50 percent of this match is outside of the ring um, there's a quite a bit of it where you are within Noah where you are within the audience um, as depleted as the audience was at Kirk and Hall at this time a little yeah. sad but a little sad but <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. You, you can't really talk about this match without talking about how Noah really did need that rebirth that they're talking about. Yeah, it's unavoidable. Yeah, but uh, Keno sort of does his last bit of damage to Nakajima, runs into the ring, and Nakajima barely makes it in by the count of 19. It's actually really good timing. You get to see uh, Nakajima's full body dive, which is a uh, very entertaining uh, thing, but they didn't spend much time in the ring. Keno almost immediately throws Nakajima out into the floor again. And one thing I really liked is that Keno dragged a battered Nakajima over to the announcer's table to show off the damage he had done to President Uchida before brutalizing Nakajima against the ring post. I found this moment really fascinating. It was as if Keno were trying to make an example of Nakajima, this man who was meant to carry Noah and had come up short. He's sort of presenting him to the company president in a very degrading manner. And that felt significant to me. It played back to this feeling of both men trying to establish their place in the future of Noah and Keno sort of saying like, look what failed and look what's succeeding. I just, mm -hmm. I found that very Keno, very, very Keno and uh, just very visceral. It was a really powerful moment to me. Nakajima did not take this punishment lying down, though. Uh, about like nine, ten minutes into the match, Nakajima does fire back up and he slapped Keno across the face, beginning the first true palm strike exchange between the two as Nakajima showed his own competitive stubborn spirit against Keno. And that's the big like word I'd use to describe this is competitive and stubborn. <laughs> just just both of them. And Nakajima was able to get the upper hand with his own dragon suplex onto the floor. And then Nakajima gets into the ring, baited Keno into the ring, 
only to deliver a dragon screw through the ropes as Keno tried to get back through. And that set up this really brutal apron PK. So you get to sort of see them like baiting each other and playing these mind games with each other. And it just shows how well they know each other. And I'll talk about that in a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. Um, They finally make it back into the ring again. And Nakajima had full control of the match finally. And Keno was struggling to make it to his feet. That dragon screw and that PK just really did a number on his right knee and leg. And Nakajima did not relent when it came to attacking Keno. They both exchanged these fast and furious elbows and then into the kicks. And Nakajima delivered this beautiful missile drop kick onto Keno and then just went straight back into the right leg and knee, including both of them engaging in an ankle lock exchange. Like I said just before, it's apparent how well the two knew each other. And now halfway through the match, Keno got into the ropes for a diving double foot stomp and Nakajima just wouldn't give him a nanosecond, not any space whatsoever, going immediately for a rolling kick to the head. But Keno blocked it immediately, just sort of threw it out. There's this funny little like get out of here gesture. And the speed that these two have at this point is remarkable, considering they've only had three singles matches together ever and two of them were from that very year (laughs) and none of them went over 20 minutes like it's really telling their chemistry is just so apparent that early on it's amazing yeah. yeah it's it's really telling like how much they like working together and like you said you have that similar fighting style that they have that they share so it's almost a natural chemistry and the fans really expect that chemistry too like this this match can really be a draw for that reason so about 18 minutes into the match we get another ankle lock exchange for a second time which led to Nakajima lifting Keno up for a PK to the gut the reason I note this is because That is often a move that Keno did on his own opponents and still does to this day. It felt like a personal touch to this match. And it sort of marked a shift to me where the match became simply less about overcoming their opponent and more about matching their opponent and rivaling their opponent. So just a little bit later, rounding 20 minutes into the match, they begin another kick exchange, this one even more blistering than the last, and the stubbornness between them had become palpable, neither man backing down and constantly daring each other to kick harder. They met each other's challenge as the audience screamed. Keno got the upper hand and then slapped Nakajima across the back of his head disrespectfully before he delivered an absolutely disgusting German suplex to Nakajima into the turnbuckles. Just Nakajima, again, just sells it like he's dying. Um, Nakajima does turn it around, though, uh, leveling Keno to the mat and treating him to an onslaught of kicks to both the back and to the chest. This is not an unusual spot for Nakajima, but it did strike me that this is now sort of a solo variation of Keno and Nakajima's current tag team maneuver as we go into their tag team challenge for each other. So uh, it was just kind of neat to see and neat to revisit this match Mm -hmm. and see do that. Yeah, just like, oh, now they do that, but together. (laughs) Keno did made it back onto his feet and the stare down between the two had become really, really intense. And they began to headbutt each other with just these sickening thuds. I don't condone it. 
Um, and it did quickly. <laughs> yeah, Keno does not do more than one headbutt against anybody. He truly doesn't. Um, so it's very short and it does turn into a slap exchange in which Nakajima is crumbled to the mat. Keno attempted to capitalize with another German suplex, but Nakajima managed to recover enough to take the momentum and counter by turning it into a vertical spike attempt. So both men at this point had given each other everything, all match. But at this point, it had reached a real fever pitch. They were attacking each other with not just great force, but with the things that they attached to their own personal identities, their finishers, and their stiffed strikes. They use these strikes against each other one more time in earnest, truly tearing each other apart with elbows, kicks, and then back into the slap boxing where neither man was holding back. And we have reached 28 minutes into this brutal match. Keno gestured to Nakajima, demanding more from him, and Nakajima obliged. They began to break away from the strikes, and Keno managed to level Nakajima to the mat and attempted his diving double foot stomp, which we now know is the PFS, but Nakajima avoided it, bouncing to his feet as Keno rolled out of the attack and onto his own feet. They stared at each other for just a moment before they charged at each other with full force for stereo high kicks. Now down to the last 30 seconds left allotted to this match as the crowd also reached a fever pitch. Both of them hit each other in the head, fell to the floor. I love when they tease the double KO. I really do. (laughs) Um, They haven't had one yet, though. They haven't actually had a double KO. Keno was able to make it up enough for the pinfall, but Nakajima miraculously kicked out and used the momentum to make it to his feet for a vertical spike. We are now down to the last wire of this match with the timekeeper calling out the last 10 seconds. Nakajima did hit the vertical spike, but Keno expertly rolled out of the way so that Nakajima could not make the cover and the bell rang as the timer ran out. This is a character trait from Keno that we do see later on, like in his draw with Shiazaki, where he gets to that point where not losing matters more than winning. He will roll out of the way in this sense of sort of ring awareness and cunning and putting survival first. Nakajima very nearly could have won the match, looking as strong as Keno looked clever. Both men proved themselves as powerful contenders for the new face of Noah, but in the end, neither of them truly was the victor of this match as the draw music began to play. We've now made it into the post-match, which I have sort of uh, ran around getting as many transcripts and, and putting my listening skills to the test to sort of get you guys an idea of what was said, because the um, banter in this post-match is really <laughs> something else. And it's really significant. And I think it really tells a lot about the two and where they sort of were at the time and where they might have been heading. So both men, as stubborn as ever, stood face-to-face and forehead-to-forehead after the match, exchanging tense words sort of quietly. However, when Nakajima attempted to walk away, Keno pulled him back and delivered a firm slap to the jaw. Nakajima did not hit back. Instead, he demanded more, shouting, come on, and Keno took that opportunity to grab the mic. Keno fired back with, come on, that's all. 
I'll fight you anytime, but today is just the first day of the league. And then promised to let Nakajima challenge when he won the belt from Edwards in typical arrogant Keno faction. Nakajima did not take kindly to that and started to provoke Keno. He actually says, like, you're not a baby face, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> sort of getting the whole crowd to pop. It was really funny. He's like, you think you're a baby face or something? And then he told uh, Keno not to underestimate him. And the entire post-match is kind of unusual because it's not actually the main event of the evening. <laughs> so they have uh, they have this whole mic segment when they still need to go into um, Shiyazaki versus Marafuchi for the oh actual main event. Yeah. That was a big match. Too. <laughs> yeah. Like, I need to paint just how weird it is that these two got a mic segment after this, like, just before this huge, huge match. Yeah, it's it's just very funny. And it evolved entirely into bickering between the two men with Keno absolutely and entirely unwilling to give Nakajima the last word. It's really funny the way he just like pivots around to add more to what he has to say. Keno told Nakajima that no one even remembered when Nakajima was champion just six weeks prior before storming off again. Specifically, he says, no one remembered you as champion. I will give the people a champion that they can remember. Only for Nakajima. Yeah, it was harsh. Like one of them, I've told you what I think is one of the meanest things that Nakajima has ever said, but that's like one of the other meanest things I've ever heard someone say in a Noah ring. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, yeah. I do think it's funny that Keno's uh, second reign with the belt was just so short at that point. (laughs) (laughs) No offense, but Keno, like, you know, I love Keno and you know how gutted I was by that loss, (laughs) but he kind of deserved it. (laughs) Well, yeah, that was really mean. That was really mean. (laughs) And uh, anyway, Nakajima um, does fire back. And he tries to sort of incite Keno's anger again by claiming that um, he, Nakajima, was fighting for, and I quote, the fans who supported him. And that this was technically Keno's, or Nakajima's third consecutive victory this year against Keno, counting the January and September bouts. Refusing to be outdone, Keno responded that this was actually his victory, as the third time was the charm, and that if Nagajima was fighting for his supporters, then Keno was fighting for both his supporters and his haters, specifically saying, I'm fighting for the people who hate me and for the people who just think they hate me right now. (laughs) So... The fans were just electric for this banter, shouting and laughing with every word and every mannerism. And at this point, it had become truly clear that Keno and Nakajima had done exactly what they set out to do going into this match. They had found their footing in this current pro wrestling Noah, and they had done that by finding a rivalry in each other that they could nurture and that would last for many, many years to come. Keno stormed out of the arena one last time, and Nakajima took a final bow as the audience cheered and applauded for them both. And with that, the curtain closed on the first true chapter of one of Noah's best rivalries, and with the enticing promise of many, many more. I love this match. This was has been delightful to revisit because it's such a 
for such a touch and go and sort of just a little bit troublesome period of Noah's <laughs> history in, in some ways, it's also a very nostalgic period for me in a lot of ways too. And just like being able to sort of really look at the timeline of like Keno and Nakajima and their relationships and how, you know, their stories have now intersected and how it's far back this starts it's also interesting to start thinking about both of them being sort of like Nakajima is not Noah born and yep. Keno is um not Noah born either they're both technically outsiders to the company yes. although Keno coming into the company is very different than how Nakajima entered the company but they are both you know we make the comparisons all the time to Nakajima and Shiyazaki and both having that like famous sort of pedigree and why they were sort of linked for many years and that sort of um, bond that they shared um, in that way. But Keno being a student of Jinsei Shinzaki, he is very similar in some ways to Nakajima as well. It's just not something that I think at this time when I was watching Noah, that I really like fully appreciated or grabbed onto in the same way that I can kind of look back on some of this now. Yeah, and I'm really glad you mentioned that because I I sort of forgot to jot that down that they were um, both, neither of them, Noah born, but... um there's an importance to them becoming rivals in this way and becoming rivals within Noah. And uh, we talked about it just recently with uh, Keno's talking about, I guess, his origin story and his philosophies that Jinsei taught him about how to make a rival. And that he, as someone who is not Noah born, finds it really important to make rivals within Noah because that sort of ties him to the promotion. So in that way, it's really interesting that you have these two non-Noah born finding a rivalry in each other within Noah. So they're tying themselves to the promotion while neither of them are actually from Noah. So it's, it's very interesting to think of it that way. But at this point, within Noah's history, they really needed that. And, mm-hmm. you know, they really needed those kinds of... Um, not necessarily outsider forces, but sort of new forces that were from the outside, but still loyal to Noah, if that makes sense. It really does. And what I also think is interesting about just the way that we've kind of inexplicably formatted this episode, you did not intentionally necessarily do this, but we chose matches that are important in that they are set in these um, incredibly important tournaments to the companies that we're going to be talking about. And it's just interesting what these tournaments can bring out in these relationships. Because oh, yeah. The tournaments really give you this do or die. It's now or nothing. Like you have to, you know, show up ready to, um, to win, right? Because you have to, you know, you know, make your way through the tournament. But these um, tournament series can usually bring about something truly exciting and these and bring about these sort of new chapters in people's relationships because of that nature of um, what these tournaments mean and what they hinge upon. Yeah, tournament season is the absolute best season, like full stop. It it just is. And uh, one thing, and this was definitely an accident, um, that did you notice that I am starting with the first block or the first match of a B block match in a tournament and yours is the last match of a B block in another tournament. So why don't you go ahead and and start us (laughs) off? That's a perfect segue. (laughs) Excellent segue. So what I'm going to be talking about is Jake Lee versus Naoya Nomura from Champion Carnival 2019, their B block decider match on April 28th in Corican Hall. To give you some of the backstory in Champion Carnival from that year, 
in A Block, a big story was Kento Miyahara, also in his fourth reign as Triple Crown Champion at the time, seeking to win his first ever Champion Carnival, an achievement that had surprisingly evaded him to that point despite his rise to prominence within the company. If he could win the tournament as Triple Crown Champion, he would be the first to do so since Genichiro Tenru in 2001. Going into the A Block Finals on April 25th, 2019 in Corken Hall, Kento needed to defeat Yuji Okabayashi to keep his dream alive, and he did, securing his place in the Champion Carnival Finals that were to be held on April 29th, also in Corken. In B Block, there were a series of tie scenarios happening, but the story that emerged was Naya Nomura defeating Suwama and Jake Lee defeating Joe Dolring on April 28th in Corken Hall, leaving them still tied for points. The solution was for them to have a B Block decider match that same night. This is somewhat unusual as far as I understand because Naoya had already defeated Jake earlier in the carnival on April 4th. Naoya's first singles win against Jake after their first five singles matches resulted in four wins for Jake and one double knockout. Jake and Naoya's B-block decider match from April 28th is the one I'll be talking about in detail today, of course. There's a couple of reasons why I chose this match in particular, and the biggest is that Jake Lee, Naya Nomura, Kento Miyahara, and also Yuma Aoyagi, who is not directly involved in what I'm talking about today, used to be in the same faction called Next Dream, which formed in 2016. They started as a tag team, just Kento and Jake, and later added Naya and Yuma. This faction was meant to represent generational change, with Kento leading the way, of course. The callbacks to Super Generation Army and the four pillars, Misawa, Kawada, Kobashi, and Tawei, were intentional. While Next Dream is looked at as an aces faction as they formed around Kento's rise to prominence and young acedom, they were truly designed to be much more than that. Just as Super Generation Army or the pillars would work together and feud alternatively with each other over the years, Next Dream would go on to do the same for each other and continue to do so today. 2018 to 2019 became a critical time period for All Japan to begin pushing some of their most emerging talent, but also for Kento personally in beginning to build his generational rivals. The 2019 Champion Carnival is a huge piece of that aspect of their stories. And I know we're going to bring it up later, um, but when you mention the parallels between Next Dream and the Super Generation Army, my mind was truly just blown. Like it was just absolutely so like galaxy brained and it's, it's so true and it's so very uh, obvious. So I'm very excited for you to talk about how these sort of generational rivals begin to emerge, not just against Kento, but against each other as well. Absolutely. So to give you an idea of the stakes coming into the B-Block decider match for Jake Lee, he has already left next stream by April, 2019. After returning from a lengthy knee injury that curtailed his first and only to date world tag team title reign with Naoya, Jake appeared during the April 25th, 2018 stop of Champion Carnival in Corican Hall, which is actually the show where Marafuji defeated Akiyama to advance to the finals, and announced that not only would he be returning to wrestling in May of that year, he would also be leaving next stream. Jake said, I am leaving next stream to face Kento Miyahara, Naoya Nomura, and Yuma Aoyagi. Backstage, Jake spoke about a sense of crisis not participating in that year's Champion Carnival after having been out for nearly 10 months. 
He noted that Kento was making history. Naoya was showing he was becoming a formidable opponent against anyone. And Yuma was coming off his Rookie of the Year win. Jake stepping away from next stream at that time could be interpreted as him realizing he was being left behind and re-entering next stream upon his return in May would be risking standing in not only Kento's shadow, but in his two junior shadows as well. By Champion Carnival in 2019, he had a new faction, Sweeper. Their aim was to quite literally sweep all the All Japan titles over to them. <laughs> it's not my favorite faction name in a promotion with excellent faction names. Yeah, a little bit of a blight uh, on the, the beautiful record that we have of AJPW faction names, but it's okay, it's okay. We know today that one of the most important storylines in modern day All Japan is the rivalry that developed between Kento and Jake. By the time Jake and Naoya met in their B-Block Decider in April 2019, knowing the winner would go on to face Kento looking to make history in the finals, Jake had not won a singles match against his former faction mate yet. Jake's star was on the rise and his performance in the 2019 Champion Carnival was critical for pushing him to the next stage of his career as a credible main eventer and again, continuing to build him into a generational rival for Kento. For Naoya Nomura, the stakes were perhaps just as high. Naoya is a post-Mudo era All Japan rookie, the first trainee to enter the dojo and debut from that time period. So with that comes a different set of hopes and expectations. Naoya left Nextstream after failing to defeat Kento in a Triple Crown Challenge in March 2019. Jake asked him to join Sweeper, but Naoya kept refusing and stated he did not want to join Sweeper. Naoya, like Jake, is also on the rise in All Japan, and that night he had just defeated Suwama, the older established ace of the company, for the first and to date only time in his career. Jake, now a senior, was still five months away from his own first win against Suwama. So this is a really significant win for Naoya at such a pivotal point in the tournament. Suwama said of Naoya post-match, I never thought this day would come. It's complicated. I'm happy, but it's complicated. But now that I've lost once, I see him as someone other than Naoya Nomura who came in as a rookie. As for today, I'm completely defeated. Like Jake, Naoya had not defeated Kento in a singles match yet either. For both of them, making it to the final meant standing across the ring from former Next Stream faction mate Kento, and a win there against the Triple Crown champion would certainly signal that the next big star from the new generation that Next Stream 1.0 sought to cultivate had arrived. And one thing I really like that uh, we've sort of I've sort of mentioned before was that they defeated Suwama and Joe Doring to get there, uh, which is just very significant that they had to go through these really, you know, big figures in that sort of rebuilding to building phase of All Japan. And now we're entering a new phase, a new generation. It was very much a, uh, feels like the whole tournament was sort of designed around pushing these younger wrestlers into significance, I guess you should say. So I, that felt really, really significant to me and perhaps maybe made the whole tiebreaker sort of scenario kind of make sense, I guess, in a way. Maybe. I think there's still a little bit of, depending on who you ask, some controversy around the, the yeah. tiebreaker scenario because now you did defeat Jake earlier yeah. on in the tournament. However, I could go either way on it. I think that the 
the, that they had to go back and face each other again for the tiebreaker, it just makes the stakes um, even higher. There's some things that come up in the match between Naoya and Jake that I think are kind of brilliant. And again, set the stage for further stories between these wrestlers so that, um, you know, we've talked about this before on other episodes, but these things shouldn't end, you know, right away, right? These things have to kind of go on and, um, you know, carry storylines forward for many years to come. And I think that what this match does a really great job of that I'll talk about during the match and also in the post-match, it really sets the stage for years of story between Naoya, between Jake, between Kento, um, and then you'll add Yuma into that mix as well. And that's what I think this match sort of exemplifies. It's just like setting the stage for the future. I love that. All right, let's get into it. So with my match... It is available on AJPW.TV. And if you're looking to get into All Japan, that's going to be the best way to do it. Super affordable and it's great. However, this match is also available on YouTube. We will link it in our blog post for the for the show. So you can find it there as well if you would like to watch it. So the crowd at this point for uh, this match is sort of electric. Everyone knows that it's coming down to this. It's coming down to the wire. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will know who is going on to face Kento from this match. Um, So the crowd is uh, quite electric and the match begins with this really intense forearm exchange between Jake and Naoya and they're both yelling at each other and Jake is challenging Naoya to keep hitting him and Naoya has just come off his 22 minute match with Suwama. He looks a lot more worse for wear than Jake does. He's Jake is definitely the freshest out of the two of them. It would absolutely benefit Naoya to end this quickly, which is why we see Naoya land a massive forearm to Jake's chest off the ropes, a spear, and then there's an attempt to cover Jake for the first two count of the match. The fight goes to the outside and Jake eventually connects with two huge kicks in a DDT, which lays Naoya out. Jake gets back into the ring and Naoya is really selling the effects of that DDT. Like he just looks completely put out from that DDT. All Japan referee Kyohei Wada begins to count and he gets to five before he jumps out of the ring. He slaps Nomura around the face a little bit to get him to come to and actually goes as far as to almost help him stand. He's not counting during any of that. Nikon Lee and a very young looking Hakuto Amori are really trying to encourage Naoya to get back in the ring. Naoya tries to stand, he falls, and Wada just restarts the count from one, which is just really interesting how many chances Wada really gave him to get up on his own and get back in the ring, which for me, I think speaks to the weight of this moment. And because Naoya is just coming off this intense banger of a match with Suwama, they're trying to get Naoya um, back on his feet to get back in the ring and to face Jake. But again, Watery starts the count from one. Jake at this point, though, is done waiting for him. He retrieves Naya and brings him back into the ring. He immediately lands a penalty kick for a two count and transitions into a rear naked choke. As Naya is seemingly starting to fade, Jake lets go and attempts the pin for a two count. Jake tries three quick roll-ups to try and put an exhausted Naya away from there, but they're all two counts. He just can't put Naya down, even though Naya by this point should be put down, right? He should be just completely exhausted, but Jake can't even do that at this point. Jake brings Naya to one corner and lands several punishing elbow strikes before executing a neckbreaker for a two count. Jake then brings Naya to another corner, smashes him with an elbow before bringing him to the opposite corner and landing a kick. On a third kick attempt in the center of the ring, Naya evades him and connects with a spear off the ropes. 
Now he goes to the top rope because he's looking for the frog splash, but Jake follows him, slaps him, and attempts an avalanche brain buster. Now he manages to slip between his legs and suplex Jake off the ring post for a two count. It's a great looking spot. Yeah. Now he goes for the frog splash against a down Jake, but Jake gets his knees up, which looks fucking awful for now. Yeah, that spot looks so brutal and so painful. They stand and trade forearms until now gets Jake up in a fireman's carry and brings Jake down into a double knee gut buster. With Jake in agony, Nalia finally manages to land his corner to corner frog splashes again for a two count. Now he goes for his modified Cobra twist. And that is what he used to beat Jake mm-hmm. for the first time on April 4th during that year's champion carnival. But Jake manages to lean back and get Nalia's shoulders pinned to the mat for a two count. Do you think he was baiting that moment? Do you think like he learned sort of from the uh, previous match or how do you make of that moment? I don't know that Jake was necessarily baiting it, but I think that he had it scouted. I think okay. that he knows Nalia really well. And I think that loss would have been sticking out in his head um, since it happened so recently. And again, that was the first time Nalia, his junior, had beat him. So he was definitely going to be looking for it. And I think as soon as he got the momentum to get his shoulders back, he was going to take it. So I think he just had Nalia well scouted. It makes sense. Once pulled apart, Nalia runs at Jake for a, like this desperate spear attempt, but Jake has him again well scouted, and Nalia catches this knee to the midsection and two additional sick-looking knees for a two-count. There is something about Nalia in particular with Jake where Jake will hit him harder than he hits any other person standing across from him in the ring besides maybe Kento, but there's something about Nalia that brings that out in Jake, and it's just brutal to watch. Upon standing... Jake pulls down his knee pad and he waits for Nalia to pick himself up from the mat. But Nalia doesn't give Jake time to set up another strike. Instead, he's just clobbering Jake with desperate punishing forearms. Nalia looks superhuman at this point. Again, having gone 22 minutes with Suwama and somehow withstanding everything Jake has thrown at him at this point. Nalia sets Jake up for another fireman's carry, but Jake digs deep too, slips off his shoulders and hits a high angle backdrop a la Jumbo Saruta for a two count. Jake stands and hits another giant killing, which is the name of his knee finisher, to a stunned Nomura to win the match and advance to the finals of Champion Carnival at 12 minutes and 26 seconds. Right after the match, Jake holds out his hand to Nalia and now he refuses to shake it before being carried to the back. So I have some additional closing thoughts to sort of bring some of this full circle for you guys in terms of the story. Jake goes on to face Kento in the finals and loses, but I highly recommend seeking out that match because it is phenomenal. It's truly one of the very best in their series. Of course, Kento makes history as only the second wrestler in all Japan history to win Champion Carnival, while also Triple Crown Champion, and it is his first Champion Carnival win. But even in Jake's defeat in the final, and now he has defeat in the B-Block Decider, they don't lose anything at all between them. For the B-Block Decider match between Jake Lee and Nayo Namor in particular, this match adds another chapter to the ever-evolving story of Next Dream 1.0, and elevated both of them so that we might have begun to imagine both of them as one day standing in the ring as true equals to Kento as part of all Japan's generational change. 
In May of 2019, Nadia began working alongside Jake and Sweeper for matches. And in June 2019, Nadia would finally shake Jake's hand and agree to work with him, but not join Sweeper. He would go on to join Jin with Jake and others by December 2019. Kento would go on to face Jake again that year in a Triple Crown matchup. Kento successfully defended his belt, but post-match, he said of Jake, this is the pinnacle of all Japan pro wrestling. It's Kento Miyahara versus Jake Lee. Kento Miyahara in his 12th year as a professional wrestler. Finally, a rival has appeared. Mm. Jake Lee, as I'm sure you've all noticed, is definitely a star. Two stars in the same place. There is still more to come from Kento Miyahara and Jake Lee. Keep an eye on those two folks. Ooh. This is the first time I've been able to find Kento use the word rival in reference to Jake, but this and Jake and Naoya continuing to work together underscores the importance of these matches to the ongoing story of Next Dream 1.0 and generational change in all Japan for wrestling. Seriously, that is just incredibly like heavy from, from Kento. Those are really, really big uh, words <laughs> that he's saying there. Puts a lot of weight on Jake and a lot of importance and... Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I'm always, um, I, I think with Kento, he's very detail oriented and extremely deliberate in everything that he says. And that's why I do recommend that people seek out uh, translations of what he says in the ring and what he says backstage, because again, he's so detail oriented. He's so deliberate. Um, he's always telling you the story he wants you to see and wants you to know in the ring and also um, in his words. So when he says things like this, it's, you know, it has meaning. It's meant to carry weight. It's meant to sit with you. Um, and that's why, you know, his rivalry with Jake in particular has been so powerful and it's been so important to the company. But the, what he says about all of the next Dream 1.0 members, and that includes Yuma, includes Naoya, all of that carries weight and is very important. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And I really like how this match um, in particular just sort of pushes and I said this before it just sort of pushes that feeling of generational change like technically they're aiming to get to Kento but it's still also about them and what they've been through you know as apart from each other and then together and then eventually as a team it's sort of a a stopover almost in their story but still in a, a very very important one which I find just really interesting and, and really good and what I want to know is uh let's talk a little bit about their Budokan match um oh what 12 seconds of it uh and that you I know I know we've talked about this to death but um what is interesting is that and both you and I sort of hold this belief that it was originally to be a um royal road match mm -hmm. that it would be a match for either of them to get to kento so there's there's sort of a parallel was it well yeah i think that it was like i think the match we saw between jake and naoya at the budokan was meant to be at the royal road before Naoya was sick and had to get pulled off the card. Yeah. I think that that was always going to be not for Jake to advance, but for Naoya to advance. Because mm. in their series, um, as I mentioned, Naoya had only beaten, Naoya got injured. He was out of All Japan for a long time. And it really wasn't too far into um, them establishing Jin that that injury happened. It was like Jin and COVID and all this stuff like happened and Naoya was out. Um, so 
in their series, Jake and Naya, um, that had their last singles match together at this champion carnival, Jake won this one. And then Naya had only beaten him the first time in the match before in the same champion carnival. So really like they're them, you know, getting to the point, like where, where we had Royal road, I fully expected Naya to go over him there because of the story that Naya has been telling since he got back into all Japan. And that's not even to get into all the stuff that's happened with Naya (laughs) and his his weird relationship to all Japan right now. But um, I fully expected in the semifinals of Royal road with Kento being the very obvious person to get into the finals. I I thought that it would be Naya going over Jake to meet Kento there because Naya still has a story to tell with Kento to the, to, to this day. Um, now yeah has yet to defeat Kento Miyahara in a singles match one-on-one too. So you're still constantly building to that. We've gotten to this year of uh, putting it sort of a, a close to the, to the story, not a full close because it's professional wrestling and it never ends. But we, um, we got to see the sort of beautiful um, ending to uh, the primary part of what was the, you know, driving Jake and Kento, right? We got to see Jake defeat yeah. Kento for the triple crown this, um, this July. But we have not seen Jake and or rather Kento and Naoya um, kind of get to that point where Naoya has defeated him in a singles match, whether for the title or not. Um, so I always felt that Naoya was going to go over Jake um, and that it would add another layer to the relationship yes. between Naoya and Jake in uh, the little tag match they had in the summer. It was like the only time that they had a tag match. It was, it was real blood versus Jake and Yuma, I think. I think yes, correct. Yes. Jake was very dismissive of now. Yeah. Very much like baiting him again as like the senior, you know, there's, there's still a lot there. Um, so yeah, to a very long point to be made, but yeah, there's, I think there's still enough there that I always felt that now, yeah, was going to end up going over Jake to meet Kento there. And then Kento would win and then end up in the main event at the Budokan. And how I want to bring this back is sort of um, going back to what you said, where uh, just how important these tournament matches really are for establishing those kinds of things that become those storylines and become those um, relationships and rivalries where you can see how they evolved. You can see how this match became a immediate stepping stone, not, you know, quite the way they planned it because now you got sick, but it still became that stepping stone to now you sort of defeating a Jake in such a decisive and brutal manner to eventually move on to Kento, which, you know, sort of a, a turnaround in a lot of ways. So um, yeah, it, it sort of just goes to show just how important uh, this match was, like you said, the weight of this match was just uh, a lot. It was really heavy and uh we're able to see the results of sort of what this match brought uh, into the future now that we are a few years removed from it. And I find that pretty cool. It is cool. And I think that, you know, Naoya's injury did sort of throw their plans a little bit. Mm-hmm. He was, he was injured for quite a while and he was, you know, there was, I think a time where he perhaps can consider ret- retirement even because of the nature of his, uh, his injury, but certainly they've been able to make it work. And that's one of the things that I think is so fulfilling about, just the way that all Japan has cultivated these storylines between the next stream 1.0 guys. And really it's, it speaks not really to the work of the promotion overall. It speaks to the work of the four of them is yeah. that um, <laughs> it speaks to the work of, of Yuma, of Naoya, of Kento, of Jake yeah. and the work they do together and the trust that they have together um, with each other. 
they keep these storylines going. They drive them forward. Everything that they do and they say about each other is deliberate and it's to create these stories and to keep them going and going and going and going. And it's been um, incredibly fulfilling. Thank you all for listening and for supporting Kickout. We are really blown away by the amount of ratings left for us on places like Spotify. And thank you to everyone who has been giving us five stars. If you have not done this yet on Spotify or your preferred podcast platform, please make sure to do so. It really helps us out in more ways than you can imagine. If you would like to help us in our quest to have more professionally translated materials for our episodes, please consider heading over to our Ko-fi page. That's co-fee.com slash kickout299. For our work cited on this episode and more, please go to our blog, kickout299.wordpress.com. If you need to get in touch with us, follow us and send a DM on our Twitter, kickout299, or email us at kickoutat299 at gmail.com. And you can also follow me, Alicia, at Kai with two eyes on Twitter. And you can find me, Rachel, on Twitter at Milky Star. That's M-I-I-K-Y Star. We are also on Instagram, and that will be at Kickout299. We do have some episodes coming your way at the end of January and February. January, we have our Talking Triple Crown episode, first episode of the year, and that will be on January 27th. And getting back into the swing of our regular Kickout episodes, We have our Diamond Ring episode on February 7th, and then we have our next episode on our Rivals series, and that will be The Aggression, Katsuhiko Nakajima and Masakita Mia, and that will be on February 21st. Thank you all so much, and we'll talk to you soon.